This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, The Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. So over the weekend, uh, Joe Biden was wrapping up his trip to Europe as part of the NATO summit, and he had a few things to say. This is some of them. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It It would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross... We'd make that decision at the time. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Now, James, the White House has very quickly walked back on some of these claims. Can you tell us what's been going on? So the White House is kind of keen to say that, that, that Joe Biden saying that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power was not a call for a palace coup or a popular uprising, that the US doesn't have a policy of inverted commas, regime change in Russia. I think that Joe Biden's comments are kind of classic example of a gaffe of you say something that is true out loud that you're not meant to say in public. I, I think it is also increasingly clear that the sanctions that have been put in place on Russia are highly unlikely to be removed as long as Vladimir Putin is in power. Now, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has suggested that you know if Russia was to withdraw completely from Ukraine and put itself in a position where it couldn't just invade again at a later date, that, that would happen. But remember... Russia is not going to withdraw from the entirety of Ukraine in that Crimea is still regarded by the UK, the US and nearly every other Western government as part of the Ukraine. But it has been formally by Vladimir Putin annexed into Russia. I don't think the Russians are going to withdraw from Crimea. So I don't think therefore with sanctions, I think the prospect, the chance of the sanctions ever being lifted by Vladimir Putin remains in power are very low. Katie, as we've talked about on this podcast, Boris Johnson is not a leader that's, you know, gaff-proof. What is the British view on Joe Biden's leadership throughout this whole crisis? I mean, I think the UK, as we've seen, wants to pitch itself as the key channel to Zelensky. And therefore, uh, while I think the UK is working with America on various things and probably... I think definitely views the US as a more helpful ally than, for example, Germany and France on a lot of the Russia relations in terms of being a much more united and sceptical stance of Russia. And that has been consistent. I think that you do see efforts by those around the prime minister to almost play up Boris Johnson's role. And while I don't think um, it's spelled out, I think there is a sense that where Joe Biden perhaps stumbles or perhaps, you know, isn't as out there for various reasons, Boris Johnson can step up and do that. And I think that's the dynamic they want to push forward. I thought it was interesting, James, that in Zelensky's interview comments overnight, that he said that Boris Johnson was actually one of the leaders that he was most impressed with in this whole thing. I mean, I until now, call me a cynic, I thought that was just a British way of looking at things. I think you can't get around the fact that the UK was one of the first countries to start sending kind of so-called lethal aid to Ukraine. It sent that lethal aid to Ukraine before the invasion began, which obviously was the most useful moment in which to send it. And I think the UK is more forward-leaning on the kind of, you know, cutting off Russian banks from SWIFT and the like. And so, I mean, there is clearly a kind of closeness there. And I think if you look at the... the, It's essentially... I think the UK has a kind of taken on its role as, you know, 
there's obviously the Eastern European countries and the Balts that are particularly forward-leaning. Uh, but the, but of the major players in NATO, the UK has chosen to be the most forward-leaning. And in some ways, that is a kind of licensed position because, you know, from Washington's point of view, they're quite comfortable for the UK to be slightly half a step ahead on some of their stuff because it then makes it easier for the US to create that broader coalition to bring Germany along and the like. I, I mean, also, the, the UK has a relatively larger freedom of action in some ways because the UK is much less reliant on Russian oil and gas. Yes, there is a lot of Russian money in London, but the UK is less entangled in the Russian economy than lots of European countries. So, I mean, that also makes it slightly easier for the for the UK to take that position. But I think that, you know, there's no doubt that the, the, the level of lethal aid that the UK provided to Ukraine before the war is something that the Ukrainians are particularly uh, appreciative of. But Katie, despite this relative less uh, dependence on Russian energy, the government has still committed to having an energy security strategy, which it still looks like it's struggling to put out. Yes, so it's been delayed again, and that's been confirmed today at the lunchtime lobby briefing of the Prime Minister's spokesperson. I think we're trying to work out why it's been delayed. I think there's probably a few things at play. So the point of this energy strategy is, particularly in the aftermath of Russia's decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, how is the UK going to be self-reliant in terms of its energy supply in the years and decades to come? Now, I think there's a few things here. Now, the week that they said they were working on an energy strategy, I think Boris Johnson implied it was going to be released the week after. And there is a sense, I think, of downstream as it can do, no matter who leads it, want to look as though they were doing something. From that point, you've then had a situation where the Bayes, so the business secretary and his department were working on a strategy. That seemed to be going on without really the Treasury even knowing about it. I don't think that was meant as a hostile act initially, but clearly you start to run into something because the energy strategy is going to involve new funding if those who were initially involved drafting it um, have their way. Because also, in a way, it's hard to think of any energy strategy which is going to announce new things which aren't going to cost money. Therefore, there are ideas coming from Quasi Quartek and his team and from Number 10, and they are meeting the Treasury. And I don't think this is so much a personality thing as so much as the Treasury is clearly going to scrutinise all the suggestions. So when you're looking at sustainable ways of energy, so one of the things is nuclear, then there's also renewables like wind. I think that where those ideas of, you know, uh, launching a whole load of new nuclear power stations have hit some resistance, as the Treasury is asking, well, that might be all well right now when there's um, a massive shortage, nuclear might seem like a good value. But is it going to be good value for the taxpayer in a few years' time, given these things take a long time to build, if the situation has changed? And then I think similarly on wind farm, that's a question about value for money. Now, all this means that this is a, dr- a dragging on, and I think that there is a sense that we're not sure when this is going to come out. And I think you put this along with uh, the spring statement last week, which we're still seeing Rishi Sunak be criticised for quite a difficult weekend for the Chancellor, you know, various briefings. Though I would say there still doesn't seem for that, that parliamentary rebellion against much in it. It's more an acceptance of there are very few options right now. But Rishi Sunak has been painfully clear that he does not think there should be greater public spending going forward. And instead, the priority should be, you know, uh, reducing the size of the state and cutting taxes. So it's hard to imagine a world where Rishi Sunak is about to willingly sign off large chunks of money for the energy strategy. Now, there's clearly a middle way, but I think that if we are moving, if you think about the spring statement, 
putting aside the criticism of one moment, I think what it did signal was a move away from that high spend budget in the autumn, which I think was very much in Boris Johnson's budget, was the spending commitments that Number 10 really pushed for, to what was much more popular, you could say, but the chance of the string statement, which was about moving away from that. And how does that go with spending bids in the future? I think that means it's going to be very uphill and probably quite a lonely time for Rishi Sunak. Mm, and James, I mean, as for all of the reasons that Katie has said, and on Sunday Times also ran with uh, a Tim Shipman piece that says Rishi Sunak was friendless in cabinet. Is he in a dangerous place right now? Is he friendless in cabinet? Look, one of the always one of the challenges between chancellors and their colleagues is that the chancellor says no. It's worth remembering that when Labour still had shadow cabinet elections and Gordon Brown was shadow chancellor, you know, he came very low down the final poll before Labour went into government because he was always the person who you know, colleagues wanted to promise for a manifesto and he was always saying, no, we can't do that because we say we're going to stick to these tough spending plans for the first two years in government. So I think, I think there, there are tensions there. I think, though, that if you are talking about, you know, Kit Malthouse saying that, you know, the state should be spending less. I think there's someone else that's saying that, apart from the Chancellor. And I think Katie's right, which is there is a kind of big question mark about, you know, what do you choose to spend money on now? And I think the energy strategy is, is an interesting question because we spent a lot of time discussing things like fracking. And I mean, whatever, whatever ends up happening with fracking, I really don't think you're going to end up fracking a substantial amount because even if central government removes the moratorium on it i think the you know the number of local authorities that are going to be keen to approve fracking in their area is low mm. and if you talk to tory mps in some of the places that would be most likely to, to you know to yield gas they say it would still be a very hard sell in their constituencies that you know they don't think that the dynamic has changed and even though you know you would i mean i, I don't know i totally got this wrong when 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 the whole fracking debate was first getting going, I thought the fact there would be a certain number of good, relatively well-paying jobs that would have to be done locally would mean that you know that there that there wouldn't be that much opposition to it. You know, and it turned out that there was you know big opposition to fracking even in you know in, and you know why did the Tory manifesto in 2019 promise a moratorium on it? It wasn't for any kind of climate change-related reason. And remember, gas is a transition fuel. It was all because they thought that in Lancashire and Derbyshire. They would lose because they would find it more difficult to hold seats if they had not ruled out fracking. Then you get onto onshore wind. You know another thing, which you know, you if it's all hands to the pump on energy right now, you know onshore wind clear case for. But there's also clearly lots of opposition within cabinet to the idea of more onshore wind. I think there's probably a difference, which is as a department, Bayes is institutionally more inclined to mm. onshore wind, less inclined to fracking. The cabinet is probably the other way around. But again, in both of these cases, I think the levels of local opposition are the problem. Now, I'm a big believer that small modular reactors, you know, are a very good idea. But I think you would be foolish, given these concerns, not to admit, if you are on the pro-nuclear, pro-small pro modular reactor side of the argument, that, you know, that, that given... British people's attitudes to infrastructure projects near them, you know, the prospect of a nuclear power station in every town, which is what you would be kind of talking about with SMR, so basically you can town power a town the size of Luton, roughly. You know, that will not be an easy sell. I mean, I personally think it should be, and I think they're, they're safe, and they, they give you, they offer you a security of supply that very few other things can, but I think you have to admit, I think that, you know, they're, they're in the planning battles there will be over the nuclear power station in St Albans, for example, is are going to be quite intense. Now, finally, another big story that is talk of 
different countries at the moment is Will Smith going up at the Oscar ceremony and punching, well, slapping the comedian Chris Rock for a joke about his wife. In case you haven't heard it, this is what happened. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? That was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the <laughs> out of me. Get my wife's name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your I'm going to, okay? Now, Simon Hall MP, who is chairman of the Northern Ireland Select Committee, has since tweeted that, regarding the Will Smith incident, I just hope that if someone thought it was good in good taste to make a joke at the expense of a medical condition of my wife, then I would get up and lamp him. The joke was tasteless. Katie? I think it's interesting that Tory MPs are um, advocating punching people who don't like their jokes I hadn't quite realized that was going to be the turn Monday morning took I don't really know much more to say Cindy it's just it's just a slightly strange I think if you look at some government policy on assault <laughs> that might be a little bit different There's than no the small Simon print ha- about the position regardless of how tasteless a joke may be it but remi- maybe J- James has more views on this James it reminded me of the John Prescott incident when he got egged and uh, punched someone in return I mean are politicians more violent than we think they are? Can I, can I just say, if you look at government views on alleged assault, I would suspect, and I think actually probably quite firmly, that they, it's a slightly different situation in terms of what you should do in that situation and what should trigger that than what Simon Hoare is suggesting. I, I think this is as, a tale as old as time. I mean, all the people are trying to say, oh, this is all the logical consequence of saying that words are violence. It's, not, it's nothing as complicated as that. It's someone insults someone's wife, the person takes exception and punches them. It, it, it is, it is, this is not a new story in human history. Look, it is one of his actions that are understandable, if not justifiable. But I think it's interesting that Simon Horth, or MPs, taking to Twitter to comment. I mean, nobody was presumably asking. No, no for... one was. You, you can say that about a lot of politicians tweets (laughs) right katie and james thanks very much and thank you very much for listening